I grew up in a town called or named Lewisport, Newfoundland. Population, less than 5,000. Our town was located 15 to 20 minutes from the Trans-Canada Highway. The place where the small highway that led to our town connected to the Trans-Canada Highway was creatively called the Lewisport Junction. It was a happening place when I was growing up. Had a small hotel, some cabins you could rent for travel along the highway, restaurants, the bus that went across the, uh, the island, the equivalent of the Greyhound. Ours wasn't Greyhound, but uh, would stop there. There was a snack bar. It was a happening place. Now, the usual Sunday afternoon for a kid growing up in my church especially after Sunday school got moved to before the church service in the morning, so the afternoons were completely free, the usual afternoon activity for a kid growing up was to lie around and do nothing wearing polyester pants. No sports, no TV, no crafts, no bike, just lying there in polyester pants, breathing. To this day, when my fingers come in contact with polyester, I cease breathing. (laughs) No lie. My parents didn't own a car, but my uncle did. And once in a while, he would show up on a Sunday afternoon and rescue me and invite me to join my cousins and a few friends to drive to the Lewisport Junction to get a soft serve ice cream. We creatively called them twirlies. Eating twirlies at the junction was somehow an acceptable part of the holy trinity of legalism on a Sunday afternoon. Breathing, napping, twirly eating. Three acceptable things. On one particular sunny summer afternoon... My uncle showed up at our house and invited me to join the crowd in the car. And there was a crowd in the car. That was before seatbelts were required. And many children poured into the back seat of your uncle's car to go somewhere to do something. And asked me if I wanted to join the crowd because something special was happening at the Lewisport Junction. More special than twirlies. A royal visit. A royal visit. The Queen was driving across the Trans-Canada Highway to St. John's, and we were going to go to the Lewisport Junction for a royal visit. I was thrilled, squeezed into the car with the other eight or so kids in the back seat. And I remember daydreaming all the way to the junction about meeting the Queen. I mean, this is awesome. What would I say to her? What am I going to say when I meet the Queen? So I rehearsed it in my head. Nice to meet you, your highness. Would you like a cup of tea with some carnation milk, your highness? (laughs) Your highness, you know, someday I plan to name my firstborn daughter after you, Elizabeth. We stood there in the crowd waiting for the motorcade to arrive. Somehow as a kid, it always seems like forever when you're waiting. 
And then suddenly we could hear the sounds of the sirens from the police escort as the black motorcade of cars were moving in our direction. People began to stir in the crowd. It was getting excited. And then the motorcade came into view. People started cheering. The queen had arrived. I was about to personally meet royalty face to face. How exciting is that? Well, it became evident in a hurry that this was a clear case of overpromise and underdeliver. As the Queen's motorcade sped past us at about 100 kilometers an hour, and all we got to see of the Queen was a white glove in the window as the streak moved past us down the highway. Now, as a kid, I was so disappointed. So disappointed because the royal visit failed to meet what I came to understand later were distorted expectations. Our sermon title today is Royal Visit. And we're going to see that there were many who were present on that first Palm Sunday as Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem as king, and this crowd failed to see the significance of this moment, some of them even rejected Jesus because they, like me, had distorted expectations of what the arrival of the king of the Jews would be like. And so as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, we are reminded that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Savior of all creation. And I want us to look at this arrival and see what we might learn from it this morning. Our scripture for today was read earlier. Thank you, Jim, for reading. You can follow along if you have your Bible, Luke 19, 28 to 38. To be honest, when this started out, I was going to talk about Jesus as king, Jesus being born as king, Jesus dying as king, Jesus as the coming king. And I thought, that's like a three-week series. So I, I really narrowed it down, honestly. Royal arrival. As we read in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem. He knows that rejection and death are waiting for him when he gets there. His journey began, if you look closely, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and this is what Luke records, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That was the beginning of the journey to Jerusalem, destination Jerusalem, objective to die for the sins of mankind. Now, to understand the significance of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem to die as king, we really do need to go back to the announcement of his birth. In Luke chapters 1 and 2, we know the Christmas story of the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and saying to Mary that this child is going to be born and he gives a lot of other information, but he says a significant sentence. He says, he will be given the throne of David. And so what the angel, the messenger Gabriel is saying to Mary is the long-awaited Messiah, the king of the Jews, who was promised to be the, in the line of David that you have been longing for in so long, is now about to be born. Zechariah, when he experienced the, um, 
the angel coming to him and talking about John and understanding everything that's, that's happening and unfolding, if you look at his words, he too says that this one who is born will be given the throne of David. When we see the angels appearing to uh, the shepherds in the fields, we'll note that it says that there was a heavenly host and sometimes, you know, we, we just like the Christmas story and say, isn't that nice? Like a whole choir showed up and they sang the announcement. Heavenly hosts are not choirs. That's the army of heaven. And the king travels with his army. And the army is uh, appearing before these shepherds on the fields and saying, the king has been born. The king has been born. Jesus is the promised future king in the line of David. The Messiah had come. The last days had arrived. Now, what's interesting as you read Luke's gospel is that after chapter 2, Luke records nothing about the kingship of Jesus. He doesn't reference it, allude to it at all until he reaches chapter 18. When Jesus is getting close to, to Jerusalem, just prior to getting to Jerusalem, he's going by Jericho, and we're told there's a blind beggar on the side of the road, and all of a sudden, in all of these chapters where no reference has been made to him as king, the whole thing kicks off again with this blind beggar who calls out and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so here we see the kingship theme reintroduced. And the next thing you know, we see the triumphal entry. Up until Luke 18 from chapter 2, Luke has portrayed Jesus as the anointed prophet. Now he brings the theme of king back into the story, just as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and die as king of the Jews. Jesus is accompanied by a crowd. Luke refers to them as disciples or followers of Jesus. As they near the city, they are joined with crowds that are coming out from the city to meet them. Now, it would be easy for us to see this passage as just historical details of the life of Jesus. But there is so much going on here that's important for us to see and understand. When we read it, we may miss it. We may not understand the significance of it. But I will tell you, it is certain that those who were present on that day, at that time, in that moment, they knew exactly what everything was that was happening and what it meant. They didn't miss it. In fact, some of them knew what was being suggested and even opposed it. Now, we can't forget that the crowd, the disciples, are Jews, they know the prophecies. They know the scriptures about the Messiah. They're a part of the group that are longing for the Messiah to come. They know this stuff by heart. We're told that Jesus sent the disciples to get a colt of a donkey for Jesus to ride on on his entry into Jerusalem. Jesus said to them, when you, when you get there and they ask you, why are you taking it? Tell them that the Lord needs it. Now, I want us to notice he didn't request that they go get a donkey. He didn't say go get a horse. He was very specific. He said you need to get a colt, a foal of a donkey, one that has never been written. 
written before. And in saying those words and making that request, immediately those who knew the scriptures, their minds would go to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it talks about that when the Messiah comes, when the king of Israel comes, he's going to be riding on a donkey, but not just a donkey, the colt of a donkey. And so all of a sudden, the dots are starting to connect. Why now? Why here? Why in this moment? It's been a long journey. Is he finally so tired he needs to ride? No. He's making a huge declaration. He is saying to those who have gathered, I am the long-awaited king. I am the Messiah. I am the one that has been prophesied about, and I'm going to ride into the city with all the imagery of a king. Now, we often call this event the triumphal entry, but in reality, the truth is this entry was more of an insult than triumphant. Jesus' pending arrival in Jerusalem was not met with the normal fanfare reserved for royalty. It was not announced with trumpets. There wasn't a big celebration in his honor. Instead of trumpets and fanfare, I find it interesting that Jesus' arrival at Jerusalem as king is announced by none other than a blind beggar on the side of the road and the owners of a donkey. That's who the announcements were made from. Fitting in the context of the bigger story, I suppose, as we read the story of Jesus, because as he's born, rather than going to the religious elite, rather than going to the most credible in culture, the angels appear to the lowly shepherds, those who were considered to be so untrustworthy that their testimonies weren't even invited to be made in courts because they couldn't be trusted. Yet they were the ones who were invited, and those were the ones who went forth and declared that he was born. Royal arrival. Secondly, royal praise. Jesus is now entering Jerusalem. He's riding on the donkey. It doesn't say that Jesus mounted the donkey on his own initiative. It says the crowd put him on the colt. Now, this was common in the days of the kings of Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, we read that David had decided that Solomon's time had come to take his place as king. He requested that they bring his donkey, the royal donkey, and place Solomon on it. And then they paraded him through the streets of the city. Kings rode donkeys in times of peace in Israel, horses in times of war. And so the result on this day is that the crowds gathered were rejoicing and there was a celebration. And in, in Solomon's time, some said, what's all that noise? What's the commotion? Why, what's going on? And said, David has made Solomon his son, the king. And the people rejoiced on the entry and the announcement of the king. Recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the people who were there, knowing the scriptures, knowing their history, they placed him on the colt as David did for Solomon. And then they spread their cloaks on the ground. This too has significant symbolism in its time and also in the history of Israel. 2 Kings 9.13 Jehu, the king, reveals to his officers, God has made me king. And their immediate response is to take off their cloaks and they laid them on the ground before him for him to walk on. A makeshift red carpet, if you will. 
Laying one's cloak on the ground was a symbol of their submission to his authority. And so because the crowd believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the King of the Jews, they took off their cloaks and they laid them on the ground as an act and symbol of submission to the King. Then when they neared the place where the road went down to the Mount of Olives, the worship service blew up. Loud praise erupted. Why now? Why here? Again, it's all part of the promises. These are Jews familiar with the prophecies about the Messiah. Ezekiel had prophesied in the Old Testament that the glory of God would depart from Israel and that the place of the departure of the glory was the Mount of Olives. But Ezekiel also promised that the glory of God would return to Israel and it would return from the Mount of Olives. And so with everything that is happening at the moment, the people in the crowd, as they're connecting all the dots of all of these significant pieces, they believed in that moment that the glory of Israel had returned. And they began to quote Psalm 118, Verses 25 to 27, the Messianic Psalm. Now, Luke doesn't actually record the words Hosanna as the other gospel writers do. But Psalm 118 begins with the words, Lord, save us. Hosanna, Lord, save us. It's a cry for help. It's a cry for God to save his people. In that moment of praise, they recognize this is the salvation, God's salvation for his people. And the crowd was praising God for sending the Messiah to deliver them by quoting and singing this psalm. Then we see the royal rejection. As the crowds escorted Jesus towards Jerusalem, they encountered the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Instead of welcoming Jesus as king, instead of joining in with the crowd and, and worshiping and celebrating and seeing the significance of the moment, they took a different direction. They rejected Jesus. They rejected his followers. They observed the response of the crowd. They knew what the crowd believed about Jesus. They knew that the crowd had connected these dots and had come to the assumption that Jesus is the king of the Jews and these religious leaders, they want it to stop. They don't agree. This certainly can't be the king. Look at him. Look at all the things we've seen. He's a blasphemer. He's, he's a glutton. He's a, he hangs out with sinners. He's not the Messiah, and we want it to stop. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. They said, Jesus, I want you to clear this misconception up. Tell them to stop. And Jesus said, if I make them stop, the very stones on the side of the road are going to start crying out. Praise must take place now. And as Jesus came near to Jerusalem, the moment of celebration turned to weeping as he weeps over Jerusalem. His desire was to bring peace to Jerusalem, to be the hope of Israel, to be accepted by Israel. But instead, he was rejected. 
And the result is they would endure a season of future destruction. In fact, Jesus prophesies and references the future and says, even this very temple that you have, in fact, you know, it, it's, you worship the temple more than seeing it as a place of worship. You worship the actual building, the land, the blocks, the pieces. And Jesus says, not one of these stones will stand on each other. Prophesying what would happen in 70 AD when Rome came in and just totally destroyed The reason they did not recognize Jesus as the king. And because they didn't recognize Jesus as the king, a day of celebration turned to mourning. Well, there's the story. There are two things I want to consider today as we look at this. The first is the kingdom. As we read Luke's account of the life of Jesus, we see, as I referenced, Jesus was born as a king. We read that Jesus died as a king. And at the very end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, we see that Jesus ascended to heaven after the resurrection with the promise that he would return because he's the coming king. So he died, he was born a king, he died a king, and he's the coming king. And Luke frames that reality for us. Every king has a kingdom. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus references the kingdom of God more than 80 times. He taught about the kingdom of God. He called those who were listening to a radical commitment to the kingdom of God, to go against everything that they had learned and believed to embrace the kingdom of God. He declared that because he had come, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then he said, it is among you. It has has arrived. Now, there are a few differing opinions on the kingdom of God. Some believe that the kingdom of God is here now in its fullness. This is it. This is the kingdom of God. There are some that believe that the kingdom of God was promised by Jesus, but would not come until the very end when Jesus comes back. There are some who believe that they can do certain things that will initiate the coming of the kingdom. So there are a lot of different views. Still others believe That the kingdom was inaugurated, if you will, when Jesus came and will be fully consummated when he comes back. We call that the already, but not yet. Here in part, but not in its fullness. And this is the position of our faith tradition. I like how Ed uh, Stitzer, in his book, Subversive Kingdom, he provides what I think is an excellent illustration. I, I found it helpful for me anyway, uh, to understand the already, but not yet. He references World War II, and he says in June 1944, as we know, as we read history, in June of 1944, during the World War II, the Allies stormed the beaches in Normandy in what we refer to as D-Day. History refers to it as D-Day. Their victory broke the back of the enemy and began the liberation of German-occupied France. It was the beginning of the end. Victory 
was inaugurated. Now, months later, in fact, almost a year, in, in May of 1945, the war officially ended on what history refers to as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, as the enemy unconditionally surrendered and victory was realized. Victory was inaugurated on D-Day and consummated on Victory in Europe Day or VE Day almost a year later. Interesting that more people died between these two dates than any other period during the war. And so Jesus' first coming, it inaugurated the kingdom. It set victory in, in process. And Jesus' second coming will consummate the kingdom. The kingdom is breaking in on us and will be fully realized when Jesus returns. Secondly, I want to refer to the meantime. So what? What does it mean for us? When Jesus talked about the kingdom, he focused on two aspects of the kingdom, really. The present and the future. In the future, when he returns, when the kingdom of God is consummated, we're told that sin will be destroyed. The enemy will be destroyed. There will be no more sickness. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more tears. In fact, it says that he will wipe all tears from our eyes. Jesus will reign as king. All will acknowledge him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is the king. When the kingdom is consummated in the future. In the present, between now and the time that he returns, we've been invited to live kingdom life. To orient our lives, how we live our lives, around kingdom values, kingdom principles, kingdom priorities. When we enter kingdom life through repentance, which literally means to take a new road. The kingdom is a new road. It is totally counter-cultural to the world's values, to the world's priorities, to the world's principles, and it's only accessible through salvation in Jesus. And so for those of us who repent, whose arrogance and pride is not so great that we cannot admit our need of Jesus, for those of us who can get to that point, we enter into kingdom living. That's what Jesus taught. We're faced with the same choice today as those, as those who were there on the road to Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. We can recognize and declare, yes, Jesus is the king. He's the king. He's the king of my life. And because he's the king of my life, I'm going to respond to him in my worship and my, my attachment and my adoration and the giving of my life. Or we could be like the religious leaders and reject him as the king of our lives. That's not for me. Or pretend it's for me, but not live like it's for me. No, that's, he's not really the king. That's option two. The interesting thing is that the evidence of which we have chosen 
is really reflected in how we live our lives. Because in the kingdom of God, the way we treat others with love and grace and mercy, forgiveness, patience, kindness, is an indication that Jesus is the king in our lives. In the kingdom of God, our priorities, what matters most to us, what dominates our lives, our desires, our attention, our time, our spending, what we value most is an indication that Jesus is the king of our lives. In the kingdom of God, our emphasis on the importance of prayer and community with fellow believers and confession of our sins, repentance, the priority given to the mission of making disciples is an indication that Jesus is the king of our lives. When we become kingdom people, we live different. We approach our jobs different. We interact with our families different. We do marriage different. Our friendships are different. The value we place on church community is different. The importance we place on ourselves is different. When we become kingdom people, we pray the Lord's Prayer, not as a memorized recitation from Scripture, but as a prayer that's meant with sincerity from the bottom of our hearts. And when we pray those words, your kingdom come. When we pray them and mean them, we're longing for the reality of the kingdom in our lives today. And we're committing to the reality of what it means to live the kingdom today while at the same time looking forward to that moment when Jesus returns, that longing to bring your kingdom in its fullness When he returns. In the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus, we live in the kingdom of God as children of the king, surrendering our lives to his lordship. He's king. He's the king. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. The conclusion of our service today will focus on three water baptisms. Three siblings from the same family. Now you know what it means in scripture when it says they and their household were saved and baptized. Three siblings from the same family. They have decided that they want to live in the kingdom of God. They want to live for the king. They've submitted their lives to him. And today they want to make a public declaration of their faith to all of you who are gathered here through this act of baptism. The king has come. The king is coming. And for us, as we are here this morning, as we read the scripture of Palm Sunday, we have to ask ourselves, Are we living the time in between as Jesus has called us to live? Are we living the time in between in relationship 
with him? Are we living the time in between fully surrendered to him? I believe these are questions that we need to wrestle as the Holy Spirit searches our hearts in the day and age and the time that we live. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. In a few moments, we're going to segue from this time to our baptism time. Our kids are coming back in, our candidates, and I'll give some directions momentarily. But for the next few moments, as the worship team leads us, I just pray that as you worship the Lord this morning, that this is not about, I came to watch a show that's about to happen. But it's a reflection of our own lives on this Palm Sunday. If he is the king and he is bringing the kingdom, then am I living kingdom life? It's an important question for us to answer this morning. So I just encourage you as the worship team leads us to consider that in your own life this morning and allow God by his spirit to touch and challenge your life in whichever way is relevant to you this morning. Amen. Father, we believe that with all of our hearts this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We thank you that his name is higher than any other name. We thank you that only at the name of Jesus can we be saved. We thank you, Lord God, that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he reigns in our hearts this morning. And so, Father, on this Palm Sunday morning, may we be reminded of something that was so significantly important to Jesus, the kingdom of God, that it would become incredibly important to us as well, that we might align our lives to him, to your kingdom, and live each day in anticipation and longing for that moment when you come in glory and bring the kingdom of God in its fullness. Lord, we look forward to that day when there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more heartache. We look forward to that day when you wipe all tears from our eyes, when the enemy is completely surrendered to your authority and we get to share eternity with you. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for coming and being born the king. Thank you for dying as king. And thank you that you are the coming king. Our hope, our future, our anticipation. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.